Welcome to the Triple D Podcast, Donuts, Disability, and Discourse, where host Michael Liner talks to the best in the business about community, impact, business, and donuts. Here's your host, Michael Liner. Welcome to another episode of the Triple D Podcast. This is a family version of the Triple D Podcast. I have uh, you know, I'm I'm from like the lower intelligence part of the family. I'm a lawyer. This is my cousin, Bradley Lander, who's a cardiologist at University Hospital here in Cleveland. Welcome. Thanks for coming and hanging out with me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> He's this is your first time on a podcast, isn't it? That's true, especially first time on a legal podcast. Just pretend that everybody's not there. So don't worry about it. It's not a legal podcast. This is like very much a conversational podcast, but you're not just here uh, out of the blue. This is a special month. This actually happens to be um, the uh, American Heart Health Month. And so we're we're talking a lot about heart health. Um, I did a podcast episode a week or two ago with a nutritionist. She's actually a, a, in New York where you just moved back from. Um, and all she, she's got a national practice helping people, um, you know, improve their diet and just trying to get their numbers where they should be. But we're doing a lot to celebrate uh, American uh, Heart Health Month. And I'm glad that you came and, and hung out and are hanging out with me. Yeah, I appreciate the invitation. Yeah. So you just got back to Cleveland. You've been back for not that long, right? Right. About six months. What's it, What's the path towards being a cardiologist? Well, at least in the United States, you have high school and then college and then medical school. Usually medical school is four years. Now there are some that are moving towards a three-year system, but I'd say the vast majority are four years. After uh, medical school, you have to do internal medicine residency, which is three years, and then a cardiology fellowship, which tends to be three years as well. So you're very well educated. That's fair to say. I've been in the school system a long time. (laughs) Um, And, and, what made you, you know, I just mentioned how you just moved back to Cleveland. First of all, what's it like being back here? This is where you grew up. I'm not from here. You're from here. I just ended up here. Right. I mean, it's a great city. And so it took yeah. some convincing to come back here for my family, but um, it's great. It's a wonderful city, wonderful people, fantastic organization that I work for, um, and hopefully make a difference in the community. You've told me in, you know, conversations that, you know, the opportunity was great here for mm-hmm. the type of cardiology that you really want to focus on. So, you know, uh, you, you, you can help anybody who has a heart problem, right? I mean, that's your training, but really there's like a sp- special focus that you want to have, which is like sports cardiology, right? Helping people. What is that? Right. So I, I am a general cardiologist, so I, I take care of all sorts of people with heart issues I don't necessarily do procedures. I don't do catheterizations or pacemakers or defibrillators. Um, But within general cardiology, my interest is in sports cardiology and taking care of patients with a condition called HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So um, the HCM is more straightforward. It's one specific condition. But sports cardiology, we take care of athletes or I should say highly active people as well who either have suspected or known cardiac issues. And I think that where it gets interesting is there's still, even though your you know, patient population might be very focused towards highly active people, athletes in particular, but the recommendations that you give them are probably similar to the recommendations that are made to all 
people how to improve their heart health. Is that reasonable? Is that right? Right. Yeah. The, the, uh, you know, there are national guidelines that recommend 150 minutes of exercise per week, either five times 30 minutes of moderate exercise or, or three times, you know, more than that for vigorous exercise. What do you think about that? I mean, is that when we say there's uh, American guidelines for that, they, they seem low. Is that? Well, I, they seem low, but very few people actually achieve that. So if they were higher, then you'd have to assume that even fewer people would be able to achieve that. Would I wonder if more people would be motivated to at least increase their levels of exercise? I mean, I never knew that, that it was, would you say, 150 minutes per week? Per, per week. And what does that look like? So that moderate, moderate level exercise, does that mean running? Is that jogging? Is it walking on a treadmill? Well, for everybody, it's different. I would say that you know, at the very least, it's walking. You know, when I have patients who are very sedentary, I tell them, you're not going to start running a marathon tomorrow, but you can start taking the stairs instead of the elevator. You can start walking for purpose. You know, I'll often ask people, do you exercise? And they'll say, oh, I walk. And I say, do you walk with the purpose of exercising or you just walk to, you know, to get to the refrigerator and back? And some people will say, no, I walk for exercise. Other people will say, I walk for, for just you know, life activities. But when I explain to them how intense they should be exercising, we start with, you know, you should be exercising at a level where you can talk, but not necessarily sing. I will only exercise if I'm able to sing while doing it. <laughs> so I'm going to need a different cardiologist for myself. But I understand what you're what you're saying. So basically, like, if you're trying to run wind sprints, you can't be singing, you can't be uh, you probably can't be conversing with the person next to you, but you know, you see people jogging down the street, having a conversation that something that gets the heart going, but you know, it's not so much that you can't, uh, you know, really think clear. Is that right? Right. I mean, certainly some people will need to sprint to accomplish their athletic goals, but that's, I don't think that's the, the basis of, of the guidelines. And, um, you know, I'll often tell people that you should be sweating when you exercise because some people will just walk, but once they start to feel a little bit uncomfortable, they, they stop. What does weightlifting do for the heart? So like my, you know, in the winter, we live in Ohio. I suppose I could go walk on a treadmill. I should do that more. But every day I go to a gym and I do some weight training. Mm -hmm. Is that, how does that fit into this equation? Weightlifting is good. It's, you know, we consider it resistance training as opposed to um, dynamic training, which is walking, running, jogging. You know, weightlifting is good because keeping muscle tone is important um, for balance, for core strength. Clearly it's working. Clearly it's working me. for you. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I would say it, it's part of an overall exercise plan. You, should, you shouldn't do just one or the other. We'll often tell people who are long-distance runners, marathon runners, triathletes, that they should include resistance training as well for a, for a balanced training plan. Yeah. What, what do you do? I run, exercise? not as good as some other people, not as well as other people, but I also weight lift, play tennis, play basketball. I tend to be more of a sport type person as opposed to simply um, endurance exercise. Now, is your schedule, do you have a really busy work schedule? I mean- coming and being a, a young doctor, I imagine you're, you're working 24 seven. Is that the case? Fortunately, not 24 seven, but I work a lot, but you, I make time for it this morning. I woke up at five o'clock to exercise and sometimes that's just what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, now, one thing that I, I know from your past is, you know, we, I mentioned you moved back from New York not long ago, and you were there right at the height of COVID. Right. Um, what was that like for you? What was that experience? Um, I would say it was the most challenging, probably scariest time, not only of my career, but of my life. Thinking back to when I was in New York City, which was basically epicenter of cases for the U.S., and I remember thinking in early March of 2020, he hearing about this and not really knowing what it was going to entail. And then we had the first patient at our hospital with COVID. And that person was isolated somewhere in an ICU. And then all of a sudden, I would say over the course of a few days to a week, in mid-March of 2020, every patient, no matter what their chief complaint was or concern was, when they came to the hospital, they were COVID positive. So... We got to a point where we had hundreds of patients with COVID in the hospital and we had to start putting two people per room, two people in an ICU room when normally it would only fit one. We had to convert um, operating rooms to intensive care units. We had to use anesthesia machines as ventilators. So it was really crisis management, resource management, and um, everybody Everybody ended up taking care of these these people because there were no other patients to take care of. Elective surgery stopped. Many other even, you know, somewhat urgent procedures were delayed because we simply didn't have the capability to do those procedures because we had so many COVID patients. Are you seeing in your – so, you know, we've kind of broken through the, the worst of COVID. People are largely going back to living their lives as they did before. Are you seeing now in your patients, though, ongoing effects from having had COVID? There are some people who have, quote unquote, long COVID. And I say, you know, in quotes, because it's a constellation of symptoms and right. certain people have some symptoms that other people don't. Um, but yes, there are, there's a very small minority of people who have, you know, residual effects from COVID. And what, what does that look like for people? How, how, how has it affected people's heart? You know, for the most part, I would say that a very, very small proportion of patients can have something called COVID myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle as a result of the virus. Um, you know, I think at one point the concern for COVID myocarditis was, was tremendous, but still those, that concern seems to have been overblown to some degree. Certainly some people have it, but not to the degree that I think the media was portraying. Um, so some people, you know, the very rare COVID myocarditis case that usually presents with florid or fulminant shortness of breath, chest pain, you know, significantly reduced heart function. Um, but we're not seeing too much of that. We are seeing some people who have long-term shortness of breath. And, you know, many of the long COVID clinics in the country tend to be run by pulmonologists. Do you have any um, experience or specialty in uh, treating people with POTS or uh, dysautonomia? I don't have any particular experience or training in it. You know, I, I see a few patients here right. and there with POTS, um, but but um, I, I don't do that particularly often. But is pot, I mean, POTS can be treated by several different types of specialists, but do they, they often have a cardiologist as a part of the team? It depends. Yeah. I mean, cardiologists certainly are part of taking care of patients with POTS. Cardiologists, uh, neurologists. Yeah. Um, 
sometimes internists, primary care doctors. And and I'm asking that because I'm just thinking about the last like four years and the the types of cases that we've seen come in the office. And I don't, it was very, very rare to have a potential client or a client with um, POTS four plus years ago. And now dysautonomia uh, is just so prevalent in what we see. And I was curious if that was something that you had noticed um, in in your practice. But it, I also understand that day to day that might not be what you're focused on and, and who you're treating. When you're working with your patients, um, you know, there's always this question of diet versus exercise. What, how much do you get involved? We talked about exercise. How much do you get involved with diet? I think that it's not a diet versus exercise. I think it's a diet and exercise. The vast majority of people who I talk to who have successfully lost weight will have done it with diet and exercise. And I do think that nutritionists and dietitians play a really important role just in general, because despite what the public may think, physicians don't have really in-depth training on diets. Um, so that could be an area of improvement for medical education as a whole. But I would say that um, if there are specific concerns about dietary or nutrition needs, then consulting a, a real professional is important. Do you work with... Cardi, do you excuse me? Do you work with like dietitians and nutritionists when a client or when a patient comes to you as a part of like creating a holistic plan for improving their you know exertional capacity? Well, we have uh, both as part of our you know health system. Yeah, I don't particularly have one in the same office as me who sees patients right. at the same time. That would be nice, um, but no, we'll typically put a referral in and then they'll see them, you know, on their own time. Yeah. So uh, a little more casual, you know, you you just came back to Cleveland. What are, what are like some of your favorite places to eat and hang out here in town? Well, I, I love Thai food and we had many Thai places in New York to eat, but I've recently eaten at Bangkok Thai on Mayfield road, which is fantastic. Was that your first time there recently? I've, I've been there twice at this point. Um, it was very good. Oh, it's very good. And then um, I do like yours truly. I like 17 River Grill in uh, in Chagrin Falls. Some good spots. Is, I mean, how would you – now, you left Cle you left the Cleveland area after med school. Right. Have you noticed much change in the city? Definitely. You know, when I left, um, I don't think that Pinecrest was – around. I don't think it was, no. So it's a fantastic addition to the east side. Um, I don't think the flats have changed too much. That was pretty built up while I was here for medical school. Um, you know, I'm hearing more and more about what their plans to do for the, the lakefront. Ha hasn't been done yet. No. It would be nice. You know, the, the only difference between Cleveland and a city like Chicago is the lakefront. And, you know, Chicago is a city that I feel like, you know, I'm from Detroit originally, you're from here. So many of your friends, as well as mine from back home, ended up migrating to Chicago. My brother lives there. Um, and and I think that when, when you question what is it about Chicago, I think so much of it comes down to just the fact that they spent time developing that lakefront. Um, hopefully they can do that here because that would be – Cleveland has so many things going for it. 
but just the downtown development really, really could impact the city significantly. And if you look at Baltimore too, you know, Baltimore is a, a similar type of city to Cleveland in the sense of, you know, size, except they use their waterfront exceptionally well. It's basically the center of, of the city. Um, and I always wonder why can't we do the same here? It's interesting because when I think of Baltimore, I don't necessarily think of, and, and I know, you know, your sister lives there, but w- when I think of Baltimore, I don't think of a city that's like, yeah, this is a model for success in America. I always think about it as stay away from West Baltimore because <laughs> <laughs> that's not a place you want to get in trouble. But um, I mean, I, I I hear what you're saying about just the way to use the, the, the lakefront and hopefully the leaders in Cleveland can do the same thing. Have you been there? Have you been to the waterfront in Baltimore? It's been a long time since I've been there. I mean, um, when I lived in Washington, D.C., when I was in law school, my brother and I, my brother lived with me, and we would go to Baltimore occasionally a few times. I know we went to like a few Orioles games. Um, what I really like that's close to Baltimore is, in, is Annapolis. Um, and I, you know, it reminds me of like the quaint little towns in Maine. Um, that, you know, I've been to over the years or, mm. or like, you know, just like a new England town, but that's like a kind of a cool special place, Annapolis, which that's where the U S Naval Academy is. Right. Right. Um, but have you been there to Annapolis? No. no. Oh, you, you got to check that out next time you go out there. It's only like 25 minutes from, um, like the area where your sister lives, huh. you, you'd really like it. I mean, it's good for families. I've heard great things Go about walk it. around. Yeah. Maybe it's a little bit further than that, but it's not far. It's definitely not far. Um, well, I really appreciate you donating your time and coming to hang out and chat with us. Um, I am looking forward to people tuning into this to be able to hear a little bit more about what they can do to improve their heart health. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you so much for hanging out, Bradley. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Dr. Lander. Thanks for listening to the triple D podcast, donuts, disability, and discourse rate, subscribe, and tune in next week for more discourse and donuts.